Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of The Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to the music, movies, and career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, as ever bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. Today we enter the digital age, the year 1979, and Rye Cooter was about to reset his career once again. His early albums had been heavily influenced by old blues and dust bowl tunes. Then came the fusion of gospel, Hawaiian, and Tex-Mex on chicken skin music. Then another sharp turn with jazz in 1978, which we talked about in our last episode. Both were commercial failures, so Cooter had to try something new again. For Bop Till You Drop, he turned to rhythm and blues and digital recording. A very smart move, as we'll see. So here we go. The compact disc was still a few years away, but by 1979, the music industry was ready to usher in the digital recording era. Unlike the CD, the vinyl record was still analog, of course, but the new process allowed musical information to be recorded on tape in the same way the computer stores information. If you had asked yourself in 1979 what music would be appropriate for the premiere, you might have thought of German electronic pioneers like Kraftwerk or Tangerine Dream or British sound wizards Pink Floyd. But Rye Cooter, the tireless treasure hunter and keeper of forgotten musical traditions, in fact, digital records had been appearing in classical music since the early 1970s, and Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young had recorded a digital album before Cooter, but it was never released. So Cooter had the distinction of being responsible for the first official digital rock-pop album in history. But when asked by John Tobler and Stuart Grundy in 1983 if he thought of himself as a pioneer when he recorded Bop Till You Drop, he replied, No. I was just a guinea pig, a subject for somebody's carpetbagger engineering notions. I'm afraid. I hate digital. However, it will come to be a good thing when we stop having to transfer to analog disc form because digital does not transfer. It makes other digitals all right. But if you mix them up, it's apples and oranges and you end up with practically nothing, which nobody bothered to explain to me at the time. Recordings took place in a brand new studio at Amigo Studios in North Hollywood. Tracks were recorded on a newly installed 3M32 track digital recorder. As is often the case with Cooter, there are at least two sides to things. Depending on the occasion and distance from the event, he will sometimes say the exact opposite of what he once said. For instance, in 1981 he told Swing 51 magazine that he had been delighted with the digital recording process. They brought a digital recorder into Warner Brothers as a prototype, and the engineer knew I didn't like 24-track. He said, well, this thing is going to solve all the things you don't like about 24-track. I said, okay, great, let's try it. And of course, as soon as you hear digital playback, you know that it's great, that it's terrific, and that everything is beautiful. Things sound utterly fantastic. The engineer in question was none other than Lee Hirschberg, Warner's veteran house engineer who had overseen nearly all of Cooter's previous recordings. In 2006, 
He recalled that Cooter was in fact quite critical during the bop till you drop sessions. Ry Cooter didn't particularly like the digital aspect. He's not a digital fan. It's not warm enough sounding for him. It was super clean and super quiet, but the top end was different from what anybody had heard. Plus it was recorded at a brand new studio we had just built. It was unknown on all fronts. The biggest drawback was the mastering. We weren't able to master it properly. It had a degree of top end on it the cutting heads on the lath didn't like. It was a learning process for everyone. In the same interview for AnalogPlanet.com, Hirschberg, a digital enthusiast himself, explained the characteristics of the new recording method. It reproduces exactly what you put in, whereas analog has a way of changing things, adding things like compression. It just has a different sound because of the metal heads and things. It has a softening effect where digital does not. At least the 3M machines we were using, what you put in is what came out. Without a doubt, Bop Till You Drop sounds different from any previous Cooter record. On the one hand, of course, this is due to Cooter's novel stylistic approach. But most of all, it is due to the new recording technology. Some would say it makes the sound clearer, purer, more perfect. Others say it sounds cooler, more sterile, less alive. In the end, it's a debate similar to the difference between vinyl and CD. Everyone has an opinion, but there is no objective answer. Certainly Cooter and Hirschberg had their share of problems trying to tame the new machine. But even if some critics thought otherwise, the result was absolutely convincing. Bop Till You Drop has always been an outstanding record, a compelling combination of form and content. And it's certainly not the zeros and ones that make a record, but as always, the musicians. Cooter also emphasized this in an interview. In this case, what makes the record what it is, is the musicians. Getting the right guys in the room at the right time is so often the measure of it all. With a record like this one, it's not so much the songs as what they sound like, although it is a good selection of songs, and we played them well. Once again, Cooter worked with a large group, 17 musicians and singers who give bop till you drop a wonderful range. Jim Keltner, Cooter's favorite drummer, returned as well as Milt Holland who was on drums and percussion. Tim Drummond played bass guitar and David Lindley, who had already been featured on jazz, moved closer to the center, playing guitar and mandolin on several tracks. David Perry Lindley was born in San Marino, California in 1944. Like Rye Cooter, he grew up in the Los Angeles area and began playing music at an early age. He started playing the violin at the age of three, switched to the baritone ukulele in his early teens, and then learned the banjo. An ambitious child prodigy, he won the Topanga Banjo Fiddle Contest five times by his late teens, a contest, it should be noted, that Cooter also entered in one in his category at the time. In the 1960s, Lindley began to frequent the Los Angeles folk music scene, especially the Ash Grove, but also the Troubadour in West Hollywood. It was at the Ash Grove that he met Cooter and Bird's bassist Chris Hillman. Lindley and Cooter shared a love of exotic music, and both learned to play certain styles from the traveling blues and folk musicians at the Ash Grove. In 1966, Lindley was a founding member of the psychedelic band Kaleidoscope. He later went to England and played in Terry Reed's band for a few years. 
1972, he teamed up with Jackson Brown and played in his band until 1980 and occasionally after. He also toured with Crosby Nash, Linda Ronstadt, and James Taylor in the 1970s. Other musicians on Bop Till You Drop included organist Ronnie Barron and Reverend Patrick Henderson, Cliff Givens, Bill Johnson, Bobby King and Herman Johnson, among others, returned for backing vocals. Soul Diva Chaka Khan sang on two of the album's nine tracks. Terry Evans was missing, as was Jim Dickinson. Cooter later regretted not having him as a producer on the record. To Cooter, the album sounded, quote, a little stiff for me and a little thin here and there. Dickinson might have had the energy to add some extra salt and pepper. The cover is a real eye-catcher. In front of a bright pink background, we see Cooter with his light blue Fender Stratocaster. With his neat side part, black shirt, purple tie and jacket, he looks almost a little too elegant. If half of his body wasn't in shadow and his gaze wasn't tilted to the left, he would almost look like a superstar. At the top, in small spidery letters, is the title, Rye Cooter, Bop Till You Drop. According to Paul Rambali, the phrase is one of the greetings used by Jim Dickinson. A singularly inappropriate title, if one may so opine, Groove Till You Move is more in line with what's on the menu. Peter Silverton wrote in his 1979 review in Sounds. Despite the sleeve, where he looks like famed American promoter Bill Graham on a combination of procaine, methadrine, and Big Mac hangover, as lit by Gerard Mankiewicz in his Azure and Mauve phase, Cooter is still as far from being star-bent as you can imagine. On the other hand, if there is one album that made Cooter a star, at least a little, it was Bop Till You Drop. Some of the songs became really successful and well-known, and Cooter's R&B elegance made him a commercial force outside the U.S., especially in Europe and Japan. The first song on the album, Little Sister, even became a number one hit in New Zealand. The original was by Elvis Presley, released as a double A-side single with his latest flame. The lyrics tell the story of a man who has fallen in love with his girlfriend's younger sister. He begs her not to cheat on him like her older sister before her. He compares the older sister to the mean and evil boll weevil, a beetle that infested the cotton-growing regions of the USA in the early 20th century. Big Sister left our hero during a date with her, falling in love with a man called Jim Dandy. The name Jim Dandy may refer to a song that was popular in the 1840s or to the figure of speech that evolved from it. As a noun, Jim Dandy refers to something that is a superior example of its kind. In other words, the kind of hotshot who can effortlessly pick up a girl, even if she's out on a date with her not-so-cool boyfriend. All in all, Little Sister is a bittersweet song about the pain of a broken heart finding a new hope. Little sister, don't you kiss me once or twice Then say it's very nice and then you run Little sister, don't you do what your big sister done Well, I dated your big sister And I took her to a show I went for some candy, along came Jim Dandy And they snuck right out Little Sister was written by Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann. Schumann later said that when he wrote it, the rhythm was different. Elvis cut the tempo in half and slowed it down. Cooter's version is another radical reworking, 
with backing vocals by Bill and Herman E. Johnson, Bobby King, and George McFadden. He told the New Musical Express, A tune like Little Sister is just a dumb song, but it's a fun song. You can't be heavy all the time. It can be boring, you know. With Cooter, the song has rich, intertwining guitars and a driving beat. You can also hear that he has done a lot of work on his voice. It sounds richer and more powerful and has an enormous range. Gone were the days when critics could make condescending comments about his vocal abilities. This was a new beginning, the next stage in Cooter's evolution. Jay Cox wrote in Rolling Stone magazine, from the sweet syncopation of the opening bars of Little Sister, with the strong structuring of Jim Keltner's drums and Tim Drummond's bass, plus the quick capering of David Lindley's guitar matched against Cooter's witty arabesques and sardonic vocal, it's clear that Bop Till You Drop is not only a record that's different, it's a record that makes a difference. Track number two is Go Home Girl, another song originally from the early 60s. It was written and performed by Arthur Alexander, who had previously had chart hits with You Better Move On and Now. Like Anna, Go Home Girl was apparently inspired by Alexander's difficulties with his wife. The song takes the moral view of a man who decides it is wrong to romance his best friend's girl and therefore ends the affair. It is more important for him to preserve his friendship than his relationship with the woman. Well, now me and Frank, we're the best of friends, and our friendship will never mend. But it would hurt him so for him to know that I love his girlfriend. Now the love of a girl and the love of a friend are two things you can't compare. Cooter gives the song a sensitive and emotional treatment. Mojo Magazine even called his portrayal of the heartbroken singer trying to act stoic-worthy of an Academy Award. Instrumentally gorgeous, Cooter's guitar is understated and subtle, and indeed, even in the restrained intro, his vocals hint at all the pain of the confused situation. He sings about someone whose heart is torn apart by conflicting emotions, but who cannot help but follow his ironclad morality. Now the love of a girl and the love of a friend are two things you can't compare. And though my heart will ache, I will let it break, cause I know that it just ain't fair. So go on home, girl. Let's call it a night. You better go home, girl. This just ain't right. The song originally had only two verses and two choruses, but Cooter adds a third verse and chorus couplet. In typical car-loving Cooter fashion, it's about an automobile that Frank lends to his friend, unaware that the passenger is actually his girlfriend. The singer tells her he is trying to forget the things that we've done, while Frank is just awaiting back home, and he makes the decision. 
Girl, you can't go ride with me anymore. That's the way it's got to be from now on. Me and Frank been friends for so long And our friendship is really strong They give me his car to go for a ride Never knows how long I'll be gone Well, I'm trying to forget all the things that we've done While Frank is just waiting back home Girl, you can't go right with me anymore That's the way it's got to be from now The next song is the highlight of the album and, in fact, a cooter highlight of all time. It's called The Very Thing That Makes You Rich Makes Me Poor. It has a great guitar intro with some sublime electric guitar playing and Cooter's deep voice telling us how the singer's father warned him about women on his deathbed. She's got something to make a man lay that money right in her hand. And the very thing that makes her rich will make you poor. That's right. Well, I'll put you behind the wheel of a deuce and a quarter. Yes, I did. Well, that's what comes of it. Our hero sacrificed himself for the woman, allowing her to live a rich life, even giving her a Buick Electra that became known as the Deuce and a Quarter because of its 225-inch length. But then he had to learn that ingratitude is the world's reward. He would rather go to bed with a rattlesnake than repeat that mistake. The New Musical Express said in its review, The kingpin hot moment of the first side arrives three tracks in. The very thing that makes you rich is a slow, inexorable piece that juxtaposes Cooter's soulful croak against phase shift Stratocasters and unbelievably rich gospel harmonies on a piece of mock grandiose misogyny. Cooter's performance contains a disarming edge of irony that should ensure that even the most committed feminists can relax and enjoy the music, secure in the knowledge that they're not actually consorting with the enemy. Like Fool for a Cigarette from Paradise and Lunch, The Very Thing That Makes You Rich was written by black Memphis cab driver Sidney Bailey. Cooter had received a demo tape of several Bailey songs and tried to get Warner Brothers to allow him to take Bailey into the studio to record some of them. Cooter told Rolling Stone magazine in 1981, I had it all lined up, and then one of these middle management guys listened to the demo and decided it was dog shit and wasn't worth a damn so they wouldn't let me do it. And then I recorded Thing That Makes You Rich on Bop, and all of a sudden they want to know where Sidney Bailey is. Ridiculous. Now, even the publishing company can't locate him to pay him his royalties. As far as I know, he could be sitting in jail right now, and that money could bail him out, or maybe he's sick and needs an operation. But since I just passed through Memphis on the tour, I've resolved to see if I can find him. The first side closes with a wonderful instrumental I think it's going to work out fine. When Ike and Tina Turner made the song their second million-selling hit in 1961, few would have believed that it could work or even make sense without the lyrics. Written by Rose Marie McCoy and Sylvia McKinney, I think it's going to work out fine as more of a dialogue than a song.
It's a conversation between a couple, and the underlying dissonance between the two comes to the fore. She is the one who firmly believes in love and wants to push him into a firm commitment, half in a whisper, half with gentle pressure. If your love is half as true as the love I offer you, I think it's going to work out fine. He, on the other hand, is much more reserved and not really ready. If you like, you can see this as an anticipation of their later marital problems in real life. Cooter's reworking gives the relationship clinch an unexpectedly gentle and atmospheric makeover. He was reportedly inspired by listening to blues musician Otis Rush. He told Guitar Player magazine, My idea was to change it from Tough Ike and Tina Turner into a more peaceful, atmospheric ballad. So when I played the slide part, I tried to imagine how the words, which are really nice, would sound with that feeling, like as if Gabby Pahinwi were to sing it. What a great idea! Sometimes I get fantasies about weird combinations of music and people that can really illuminate a song idea. For me, that's the most fun thing about making records, the reason I wanted to make records in the first place. For the first time, Cooter explicitly uses the bottleneck guitar as a vocal substitute. The way he plays it works perfectly, and he will use this method often in the future and develop it successfully. For most critics, the song was another standout on the album. Rolling Stone said, Cooter's instrumental version of I Think It's Going to Work Out Fine takes the sweet growl of the Ike and Tina Turner original and sets it against some easy, sexy self-assurance. I can Tina made this number into a toe-to-toe -to -toe at midnight, but Cooter's version is full of relaxed and low-slung afterglow. And NoDepression.com said, Rye Cooter's version is smooth and haunting. The emotions of the song are carried and conveyed solely by his slide guitar playing. The playing of the session then is entirely sympathetic. He uses his regular players of the time. Jim Keltner on drums, Milt Holland on percussion, Tim Drummond on bass, and David Lindley on guitar. The four songs on the first side of the album form a strong stylistic unit. All are characterized by Cooter's singing bottleneck, which has never sounded so ingratiating and beguiling. The second side is different, not so homogeneous, not so bottleneck heavy, but varied and surprising. This begins with the opener, Down in Hollywood, only Cooter's second original composition, here in collaboration with bassist Tim Drummond. It is a very relaxed piece with a strong groove and some radio play elements. It also looks to the future. In some moments, it feels like a scene from the movie Streets of Fire, for which Cooter will provide the music in 1984. And of course, with its local reference, 
It is also like one of those Los Angeles stories that Cooter will be telling on his albums and in book form in the 2000s. The story begins with a hitchhiker traveling to the big city to attend a concert. Some bad blues is to be played, and he apparently wants to sneak past the bouncer without a ticket, but with plenty of alcohol. But then things turn out differently. In the sleeve notes to the compilation, The UFO Has Landed, Cooter revealed that the song was based on a real-life encounter. My first car was a 1947 Packard Clipper, a beautiful car that a family of five in Guatemala could live in comfortably. Leaving the CBS building after a late-night session, I waited at the stoplight at Gower and Sunset. Two street hookers began arguing over who saw me first. One grabbed the passenger door handle, and the other grabbed the driver's door handle, and they commenced to shake and rock the big car back and forth. You best not run out of gas in Hollywood. Cooter enlisted the vocal support of Bobby King and singer Chaka Khan, who had previously been a member of the group Rufus and had released her solo debut a year earlier. The voices on this song are constantly shifting, as if Cooter had transferred the dialogue style of the original. I think it's going to work out fine here. There's a street scene in the middle of the song that illustrates the dangerous atmosphere. It feels surprisingly realistic. For the first time, Cooter seems to have the knack of using his voice like an actor. He plays one of the hooligans who runs away and, at the end, a cop who arrives at the scene to discover the chaos. Hi. You know, you're gonna get arrested the way those pants fit around your thighs. Oh, come back, honey. Don't leave now. Oh. Hey, bud. Come here. Let me talk to you for a second. Give me that Critic Charles Sher Murray sums it all up very well. Over on side two, Cooter dives into the maelstrom of the modern urban obstacle race with the kind of terrified glee first demonstrated by Randy Newman on Mama Told Me Not to Come. Only this time, it ain't just a party. It's the whole city. The song's infectious groove could even send this one into the discos and knock down an effortless nomination as single of the week. Aided and abetted by Chaka Khan, who delivers her best singing for years in this setting, Cooter presents a contemporary vision at least as compelling as the marvelous period pieces that he's been dishing up all these years. Loaded with dialogue, sound effects, and fiery counterpoints from Khan, Down in Hollywood is about as relaxed, quaint, and folky as a sham 69 gig. Next up is Look at Grain Run Run. This one clearly keeps us on playful and comical ground. Written again by Mort Schumann, this time with Jerry Ragovoy, the original was a hit for Howard Tate in 1966. Long before Viagra is about a miracle pill that turns a grandfather into a horny goat, causing the granny of the title to run. He went to the doctor, got a brand new pill. The doctor said, son, you ain't over the hill. Now he can't sit still. Great gosh, In the early 60s, 
Tate was the vocal frontman for Bill Doggett, the organist of the instrumental hit Honky Tonk. Between 1966 and 1968, Tate had other minor hits, including Ain't Nobody Home and Baby I Love You. For his version, Cooter brings out his mandolin. Later, the electric bottleneck guitar joins in and Cooter uses the light song to celebrate the interplay between his two favorite instruments, just like in the old days. As on the start of side two of jazz, where three Bix Biederbecki compositions in direct succession form their own little unit. Cooter arranges three soul and gospel tunes into a group of similarly styled tracks at the end of Bop Till You Drop. First up is Trouble You Can't Fool Me, originally an R&B track written and recorded by Frederick Knight in 1972. It's a nice, not too serious song about the difficult side of life. Everything that can go wrong, from not getting paid to unrequited love, is attributed to the trouble that can lurk behind the next tree like a real person. Once again, Cooter skillfully uses his backup singers to make the song fuller and more complex. They function as a chorus, but also as sparring partners with whom Cooter enters into a scenic dialogue. The interplay between the different guitars sometimes sounds like a conversation too. When Rolling Stone journalist James Hankey met Cooter in the studio for an interview in 1981, he was surprised to see Cooter sitting at the drums. But as it turned out, sometimes a guitar player needs to be able to drum in order to realize his musical ideas. Cooter explained, You know trouble you can't fool me. Well, there are certain things that a song has to have. These off-time parts, these hits have to come at a certain time. Otherwise, the song doesn't work. Often I'll tell my poor drummer something, and he won't understand what I'm talking about. It's tough to describe a part, so I gotta find ways to show him. Next up is Don't Mess Up a Good Thing, a kind of sequel to I Think It's Going to Work Out Fine in that it's another conversation between a couple. Only this time, the good thing of the title is really in danger because the man is having an affair across town. He even seems to ignore his partner's warnings, which makes us wonder if these two really have such a good thing going. Here is the original, first released in 1965 by Fontella Bass and Bobby McClure. Birthday, birthday, 
For his version, Cooter again teamed up with Chaka Khan. He remembered, With Chaka Khan, I know her. She had just had a baby and was bored staying home. So I asked her to sing with me. I'd thought that someday it might be good to do a duet of that song, Don't You Mess Up a Good Thing, which was by Fontella Bass and Bobby McClure, and Chaka's certainly an extra good singer at that kind of stuff. The album closes with I Can't Win, a song Cooter was introduced to by his backup singer, Bobby King, with whom he had been working since the early 70s. It's another sad tale of unrequited love, originally released by The Invincibles in 1970. In a 1982 interview, Bobby King remembered the production of Cooter's adaptation. It's a funny thing about the way I did that one. Rye had the band in the studio, and what he wanted was a guide vocal for me for the band so that they could get the music down. So that's what I did. The next day, we were to come in and do the backgrounds while he did the lead vocal. But when we came in, he said, Hey, Bobby, I decided to leave it the way it is. Leave your voice on it. And nobody else does that, you know? King's voice, with its church roots and street inflections, combines with the aching eloquence of Cooter's guitar to end the album on a high note of soaring soul. Bop Till You Drop was released in July 1979 and became Cooter's first modest success. It reportedly sold about 300,000 copies, more than all of Cooter's previous records combined. It reached a respectable number 62 on the U.S. Billboard charts and did even better in other parts of the world, especially Australia, New Zealand, the Netherlands, and Scandinavia. In the U.K., the album gave Cooter his first chart entry, peaking at number nine and spending an impressive 36 weeks on the list. The critics loved it, too. The New Musical Express wrote, Bop Till You Drop is a signal triumph. The best thing that Cooter's done since Into the Purple Valley. The best-sounding rock record ever made. The best California-recorded album this side of the new Neil Young. The best album of the year since Graham Parker's Squeezing Out Sparks. Jay Cox wrote in Rolling Stone magazine, I figure Bop Till You Drop for something pretty close to sensational, but like all Cooter LPs, it's so full of surprises and left-field humor, it may keep you off balance for a little while. 
Cooters after an approximation of the feeling and the texture of the originals. But what he hears in them is so unique that knowing his sources is of no particular advantage to the listener. Cooter recasts these songs in such a radical fashion that he almost reinvents them. Elizabeth Ann Bruno wrote for the Washington Post. His latest album evidences Cooter's usual professionalism. The recording's musicianship, arrangements and production are impeccable. He is a tasteful, mature, and sympathetic guitarist, joined here by an equally subtle and dedicated instrumentalist, David Lindley. Although Lindley's musical presence isn't emphasized, he and Cooter bolster each other's work skillfully. Bruno was more than right. Cooter and Lindley complemented each other perfectly. The two quickly realized that this not only worked in the studio, but on stage as well. For Cooter, this opened up a whole new touring opportunity after the failure of the Chicken Skin Review. Together with Lindley, he was able to ignite a remarkable live firework with just two string instruments, without the constraints and expense of a large band to organize, manage, and pay. So it was only natural that after a handful of festival appearances in Europe, Lindley joined Cooter on a short tour of New Zealand, Australia, and Japan in late summer and autumn. On October 2, the two played in Perth, Australia. A recording of the performance can be found on YouTube. The link is in the show notes. It is a great concert with a cross-section of Cooter's work. It begins with a rousing reinterpretation of the old classic alimony. Another example of the amazing interplay between mandolin and electric bottleneck is this version of Act Sweet Mama, originally called Milk Cow Blues by Sleepy John Estes. Finally, here is an almost unrecognizable interpretation of the bourgeois blues. Cooter and Lindley really let it rip. Thank <laughs> you. 
the three. I don't want to be mistreated by those stinking bourgeois TV and a bourgeois town. It's a bourgeois town. I got the bourgeois blues gonna spread the news all around. Before we wrap up today's episode, there are three more 1979 projects to talk about. First, there's a collaboration with old friend Jim Dickinson called Beale Street Saturday Night. It is a tribute to the music scene of Memphis, Dickinson's hometown, and a kind of conceptual compilation. Released by the Memphis Development Foundation as a one-time benefit to raise money for the much-needed rehabilitation of Beale Street's famous Orpheum Theater, which was then in danger of being sold and demolished, Beale Street was recorded mostly on location. The album includes 14 tracks by various artists, a collection of songs and spoken memories that bleed together to create a specific history of Beale Street. Ry Cooter is among the many guest musicians, and although there are no specific credits, it is safe to assume that he played mandolin on Big Fat Mama Liquor Store by none other than Sleepy John Estes. One could read it and one could sing. One tell you why don't you do that thing. Pop gun man, mama won't stop that thing. Oh, big sad mama won't stop that thing. Skinny mama won't you do that thing. Kind mama won't stop that thing. Pop gun man. Second, there is Van Morrison's album Into the Music, recorded in the spring of 1979 at the Record Plant Studios in Sausalito, California. Cooter came in to play slide guitar on one track, the gospel-like full four-scale. In the lyrics, Morrison describes the feeling of meeting the Lord. He is lifted up as if by a natural force, the full force of the storm. When asked about the theme of rebirth that appears frequently in his songs, Morrison replied, I wrote a song called Full Force Gale where I said, No matter where I roam, I will find my way back home. I will always return to the Lord. That answers it for me. No matter what I say at the moment, that's how I feel. Finally, there is no nukes. The Muse concerts for a non-nuclear future. I want to tell you that we all love you for being here tonight. You're going to hear a lot of fine music tonight. Right now I want to introduce a really good friend of mine, a person whose music I've listened to for a long, long time and enjoyed And it's a personal thrill for me to see him on this stage here tonight. Would you all welcome Ry Cooter. Muse stands for Musicians United for Safe Energy. It was an activist group founded by musicians Jackson Brown, Graham Nash, Bonnie Raitt, and John Hall. The group opposed the use of nuclear power and formed after the Three Mile Island nuclear accident in March 1979. Muse organized a series of five no-nukes concerts at Madison Square Garden in New York in September 1979. 
The live shows resulted in a triple light album featuring performances by the Duty Brothers, Chaka Khan, Tom Petty, and Bruce Springsteen, among others. In the accompanying booklet, Cooter wrote, The threat from nuclear power is the scariest thing in the world. You can't see it. You don't know it's there. Smog you can see. Chemicals you can taste. But the stuff from reactors is invisible. People can't grasp what it can do to them. But we know what's it going to do to generations down the line. It's genetic. A threat to the genetic chain. But this is an issue where people have a chance to do something and actually feel effective. They can't build a reactor unless people let them. If everybody in these target communities were to rise up, it would all be over. The album features only one Cooter song, Little Sister. That night, September 21, Cooter actually performed four more songs that didn't make it onto either the album or the movie, which was released in 1980. In addition to Go Home Girl, the very thing that makes you rich and don't mess up a good thing, he also played Lookin' for a Love. The song was actually his first collaboration with Bobby King, who released the song as a single in 1973. And that brings us to the end of episode 11 of the Rye Cooter story. Thanks for listening. We have reached the end of the 70s and with it a major turning point in the career of our favorite guitar player. Over the course of the decade, Cooter released no less than eight albums. That number is impressive in itself, but it becomes even more spectacular when you consider that he would only produce nine more solo albums over the next 38 years. Still, the next decade would be full of new, exciting Cooter music. The year 1980 marked the beginning of a new chapter. Cooter went to the movies. Our podcast is taking this turning point as an opportunity to go on a short hiatus. It's time to take a breather, do some more research, and then get ready for next season. We'll be back in January with Cooter's first own film score, Walter Hill's The Long Riders. Until then, stay tuned, check out our social media channels, and have a great time. Thanks again for listening and see you in 2024.